coming to you from a cozy little condo high atop old Fort Ward, Atlanta. Welcome, Welcome to The Ron Show on America One Radio. Here's your host, Ron Roberts. And a happy hump day to you. Later in the show, we do have Morrow City Council person Van Tran on. And she and I have gone back and forth over the course of the last few days to try and secure that opportunity. She's a busy person. She is a Morrow City Councilwoman, but she's also an employee for the city of Atlanta. And she's had a lot of media requests lately. I'm grateful that she gave us a few minutes to talk with her. And we will discuss um, her run-in with fellow council person Dorothy Dean, who had this to say at Van Tran in a recent city council meeting. Listen to this. And I'd like you to know that I feel, as a citizen of this city and as a fellow council member, that you do not deserve to sit on that dice wow. as an elected official. You have failed in your oath of office. You have failed as a citizen of this country. Mm. You disregarded and you dishonored those oaths that you took as an American citizen. I would like to say that is un-American and inexcusable. Shame on you, Van Tran. And by the way, that is not some magalicious, Caucasian, rural... I mean, it doesn't hit any of the stereotypes for anti-immigrant. But that came across very xenophobic from Congressperson Dorothy Dean. What exactly is Morrow City Councilwoman Van Tran trying to do that has Dorothy Dean so upset? We'll discuss. Well, before we get murky with local Morrow City politics, let's go national with some really good news. Saw this yesterday afternoon on Deadline White House. Morgan Stanley, let's start with this news this hour, is revising its estimates for the future of the American economy. On Friday, the financial services firm credited Bidenomics for much stronger than expected GDP growth. The bank now projects 1.9% GDP growth for the first half of this year. That's nearly four times higher than the bank's previous forecast, which had been 0.5%. And looking into next year, they raised their forecast for real GDP in 2024 by a tenth of a percent to 1.4%. The revision comes as President Biden has been on the road trying to sell the American public on his Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act. The legislation directs billions of dollars towards new construction on roads, bridges, airports and seaports. It also includes plans to increase the availability of broadband Internet to replace lead pipes and build electric vehicle charging stations. Now, here's where I feel like I have to say to both sides, left and right. First, let's address the right. All right, listen, don't come at me with the GDP numbers that Donald Trump saw his first three years. 2.24, 2.95, 2.29. Fourth year was in the negative, 2.77%. Don't give me the sneery jeery, 1.9% is nothing when you've got 2 point and 3 point. Okay, but. So far, in the first full Biden presidential term, there appears to be no negative GDP showing up. And also, considering his first full year in office, we saw GDP growth of 5.95%. Well, that seems to 
really cast a shadow on the smaller, much smaller, much tinier numbers that came under President Trump. I know, I know, COVID recovery. You're right, absolutely, COVID recovery. But the COVID deficit only showed a negative 2.77% GDP growth. The rebound was 5.95%. And here's where I pivot to those on the left. Now, listen, I'm not giving Biden credit for the 5.95% GDP growth. Not all of it, anyway. Although, I will say this. I will say, as someone who was not excited about a Biden presidency, although much more so than I would have been a second Trump term, I was one of those folks who really wanted to push hard to the left. And having Bernie Sanders in his ear, President Biden actually kind of did. And tightrope walked a little bit on uh, whatever legal maneuvers, whatever economic levers he thought he may have had or didn't have. You know, student loan forgiveness, kind of a legal tightrope walk there before arriving at what he's going to be able to do and know he's going to be able to do now that the Supreme Court has ruled on uh, his initial debt forgiveness. In any event, slow and steady has sort of won the race. The thing about the American economy is this. We get on these sugar highs where we see these tax cuts, and this is what the right runs on and has since Reagan. They run on tax cuts that are progressively better for the wealthy than the rest of us. They don't mention that part, but they run on tax cuts, and that kind of gives the economy a little jolt, a sugar high, a sugar rush, but then we crash. I mean, it, it, it happens so cyclically, it's not even funny. These crashes, by the way, don't tend to happen when Democrats are in office. Not in a, uh, the, the, the uh, eight years of Bill Clinton. I mean, there's a little bit of a waiver, but not a full-on whoop. There was none of that. That happened under George H. Bush, not so much under Bill Clinton. It didn't happen under Barack Obama. Barack Obama, we should remember, inherited a dumpster fire of an economy and sort of did a a lot of the same thing. The slow and steady wins the race sort of thing. Of course, he had to deal with an intransigent, uh, intransigent opposition party who sought to absolutely say no to everything that he wanted. So he got a modest stimulus package passed and slow and steady sort of guided the economy. So much so that despite the sugar rush of the first three years of the Trump presidency that was ushered in on, again, tax cuts, progressively better for the wealthy than everybody else. They don't mention that. Which, by the way, those tax cuts for the rest of us had expiration dates on. Don't tell us that either. Anyway... Trump's first three years, as good as they were for, with that sugar rush, that false high, they still weren't as good as Obama's last three years without that false high. Because, as we've learned in the Biden presidency, this Bidenomics that now the White House wants to run on, slow and steady tends to win the economy. And now you're seeing... These Wall Street prognosticators, the Morgan Stanleys, they're all backing away from soft landing. Soft landing was was the good news. Soft landing was that, yeah, we'll take that. Now they're we're, we're skipping right on past that. No, the economy's just going to keep growing. We we avoided the soft landing. We'd avoid we've avoided the recession. And now Morgan Stanley and company are getting behind Bidenomics. They're speaking glowingly of America's economic future. 
Morgan Stanley, according to NBC News, is crediting President Joe Biden's economic policies with driving an unexpected surge in the U.S. economy. That is so significant that the bank was forced to make a, quote, sizable upward revision to its estimates for U.S. gross domestic product. The story continues. Biden's Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act is, quote, driving a boom in large-scale infrastructure, wrote Ellen Zentner, chief U.S. economist for Morgan Stanley, in a research note released Thursday. In addition to infrastructure, quote, manufacturing construction has shown broad strength, Ellen Zentner wrote. As a result of these unexpected swells, Morgan Stanley now projects 1.9% GDP growth for the first half of this year, nearly four times higher than the bank's previous forecast of a paltry half percent. Quoting Ellen Zentner again, the economy in the first half of the year is growing much stronger than we had anticipated, putting a more comfortable cushion under our long-held soft landing view. Now, if you don't think that the Biden Infrastructure and Jobs Act is doing so well, well, look at the GOP politicians who are taking credit for it back in their home districts with their voters, even though they voted against the act. That tells you all you need to know. And I don't know if you remember when I aired Marjorie Taylor Greene's statements from the Turning Point USA conference, but (laughs) Joe Biden's people succinctly grabbed that. I said when I played that audio, this is like a campaign ad for Joe Biden. And sure enough, he's turning it into a campaign ad. Joe Biden had the largest public investment in social infrastructure and environmental programs that is actually finishing what FDR started, that LBJ expanded on, and Joe Biden is attempting to complete programs to address education, medical care, urban problems, rural poverty, transportation, Medicare, Medicaid, labor unions, and he still is working on it. That's literally a campaign ad now on the Biden-Harris website and on their social media. Thank you, Marjorie Taylor Greene. Now, I joke, but seriously, you only see that airing on social media. The Biden-Harris re-election staff needs to put some money into airing that on television and radio. Social media is great, yeah, but put some money in social too. Make sure folks see it there too. That is what needs to be airing with such repetition, it makes you sick to hear it. All I mean, aside from her voice, it just you get sick of hearing it because you've heard it so many times before. Like that pop song that they play 130 times a week on your favorite radio station. Just got to keep airing that repeatedly. Every 40 minutes, keep airing that. That's Marjorie Taylor Greene essentially endorsing what now Morgan Stanley is saying is working for the American economy. And by the way... Not only is what the Biden economic team, Bidenemics, not only is what they're doing now working, but they're also planting seeds for what's going to work in the future. That manufacturing construction boom, well, that, that leads to manufacturing, which leads to jobs, which leads to products on shelves, which consumers buy because they've got these good manufacturing jobs. No, of course, not everybody's going to go to college. Not everybody's going to go to a trade school, but factory jobs, that's what this country has lacked and seen hemorrhage in the last 50 years. Well, manufacturing's 
coming back for that hardworking American citizen that may not attain that highest educational level, but wants to work hard to contribute to this economy and put food on their table for their kids so that their kids have a chance to maybe attain that loftier educational acumen or just perpetuate the cycle and have a skilled job waiting for them. And dare I even mention that a lot of this manufacturing push is happening in states that did not actually go for Joe Biden in 2020. And I'm not pretending that that's going to change the outcome in most of those fervently red states, but even that is a seed being planted for America's future. Because at some point, some of these states are going to turn, especially as their economies continue to grow. More on show after this on America One Radio or wherever you podcast. Welcome back to The Ron Show. You know, as I was sitting here going off on uh, all the things that the Biden economic plan is doing, planting seeds for the future, with infrastructure spending, long overdue infrastructure spending. And you can't, even on the right, disagree with that need because it's what Donald Trump wanted to get passed as well and couldn't. And, of course, Republican politicians are taking credit for infrastructure spending in their districts that they voted against. But as I also mentioned, not, not, not just the infrastructure spending, but the manufacturing spending, the construction spending towards manufacturing, uh, even the CHIP Act, uh, all, all of these things that are just seeds planted for not even benefiting us now. Although the construction stuff does benefit us now because those who work in construction have more money to consume with, and that helps the economy. But I've heard a lot of grousing from folks on the right. Well, he's just doing this to, to win over votes. He's just, he's, he's targeting these Republican areas to win over votes. And your problem with that is what exactly? I mean, that's what stumps them. Why, why is that a problem? It's, it's, a, it's a, an election stunt to create jobs. It's just an election stunt. It's not even short term. Like most people don't take jobs for just the benefit of a few months. Folks who take jobs take jobs hoping to have them for three, five, seven, 10, 15, 20 years, right? That's not an election stunt. That is a game changer for someone who's looking for employment. That is a game changer. It's a game changer for a struggling community with shuttered factories. It's a game changer. It doesn't just benefit those who get employed in manufacturing. It benefits those who are in nearby retail or would be in nearby retail that sprouts up from that game-changing election stunt. I'll take that kind of election stunt over gerrymandering any day. I'll take that kind of election stunt over tax cuts that are progressively better for the more well-off that have expiration dates for the less well-off. I'll take that kind of election stunt all day, every day. Next segment, we're going to talk with Morrow City Councilperson Van Tran, who was the target of, I'm just going to editorialize, a nasty rant by fellow Morrow City Councilperson Dorothy Dean. I don't know Dorothy. I don't know Van. I'll get to know Van next segment. You all with me as well. I don't know 
how they fit ideologically. Uh, I get the sense that that Van is very much on the the liberal side of the spectrum. Just gonna go out on a limb. I mean, she is a uh, a woman who was born in Vietnam, moved here when she was thirty, uh, has lived in the U.S. for more than a dozen years. Most of that time in Morro. I I mean I don't I, I'm not even gonna ask her if she's a Democrat. It doesn't really matter. What I found coming out of Dorothy's mouth, though, has me wondering, is Dorothy a liberal? Does Dorothy vote along with the left? And maybe she does, and maybe she doesn't, and maybe this is just one of those things that you have to sometimes say, see, we don't all think in lockstep. Dorothy thought it un-American for her fellow council person, Van Tran, to seek ballot instructions in Vietnamese and in Spanish. For the sizable Asian American and Hispanic American populations in the city of Morrow, for those who don't know, Morrow is like one of the more diverse cities in the state. In the in the state, for sure, in the country, you could even speculate. Forty percent of the population of Morrow is African American. Thirty percent is Asian American. It's crazy, right? I mean, you just it, yeah, it's and and like sixteen percent or something like that is Hispanic, and. Uh, a, a little bit less than that is white. So it makes some sense, actually, that you would have some literature for the Asian American and Hispanic American population. Dorothy, by the way, believes, you know, I don't care how long you've been here, whether it's, you know, five minutes or five years, you need to know English. Learning a second language is not easy. And I would wonder if Dorothy Dean knows a second language. It's tough. It's tough to learn a second language, even harder as an adult. Anyway, uh, last night's Morrow City Council, Dorothy didn't back down. She had more to say. When someone mentioned the word freedom, in my opinion of freedom is if you understand language that is spoken in a country, that's freedom. That is true freedom, that's independence. And not that I'm against everyone having their freedom. The language if you will, if you will, and if you can, it's all over. When you leave the, the polling place, you're going to have to speak to somebody to ask, what is that, son? What is this? Please tr- learn the language because it will give you complete freedom as an American yeah, needless to say, those who were there did not agree with her. Um, again, I would want to ask Dorothy, do you know a second language? Are you currently learning a second language? It's not exactly easy as an adult to learn a second or third or fourth. One of my one of my brightest friends, this guy is, you know, educated to the nines, multiple degrees, uh, born in the Dominican Republic. English is his second language. It's a struggle for him. It's a struggle for me because it's a struggle for him because sometimes he'll say things and I'll be like, let me sound that out. But he's also learning French. He is a super smart guy, and he's taking French classes, and he says it's very tough. He's a really bright guy. He's near 40, and it's hard for him to learn French, and he already learned English as a second language. Yeah, it's just not easy to learn another language. And it just seems odd to me that when Dorothy spoke of like asking people what a sign says, wouldn't it? then just make more sense to have the literature that is in the language of the person who 
is asking the question? I would think so. I mean, Dorothy's not wrong. There is a lot of freedom in knowing the language of the signs and the predominant population in any environment you are in. For sure, no doubt about it. She's not wrong there. But that doesn't mean your civil rights end where your literacy for the local language can't begin. No, ma'am. I can't believe I'd be having to have this conversation with an African-American woman of a certain age who certainly understands that we have a history in this country of these election polling quizzes that were given to less than literate citizens back in the day. These quizzes and taxes and questionnaires that had to be filled out were struck down by our highest court. We talked with Morrow City Councilwoman Van Tran about this after the break here on The Ron Show, America One Radio or wherever you podcast. Take The Ron Show wherever you go. Download the America One Radio app to your smartphone and listen on the go. Or in traffic wishing you were on the go. The Ron Show on America One Radio. And I'm happy to have moral council person Van Tran on the phone. Van, thanks for making time with me. I appreciate that. How are you? I'm good. Thank you. How are you? I'm good. I know you've been busy the last few days dealing with uh, local and maybe even some national media. Uh, to reiterate a story that we first touched on last Friday, uh, Councilperson Dorothy Dean essentially called our guest, Van Tran, un-American for daring to suggest that ballots maybe have more than just the English language on them. Spanish, Vietnamese uh, were, were too uh, made of note. And... I, I was a little appalled by it. I'm sure you were as well. There wasn't even an opportunity to respond at the city council meeting. Have you and Councilperson Dean spoken since? Um, well, right after the meeting was dismissed on that night, I tried to tell her that I will follow up with her by an email, but she just walk away and say she doesn't need the email. No need to send her an email. Man, um, have, have have you and have you and this council person had a, a decent relationship prior to this? Uh, we work together. There are times that we don't agree, but it doesn't mean that uh, we get anything something like this. Mm-hmm. Now, I was going to point out, by the way, that according to the Crescent, uh, I'm sorry, the Clayton Crescent article from um, a, a few years back that uh, Miss Dean ran for re-election and did face uh, an opponent by the name of Hugh Gwynn, uh, who obviously uh, did not make the council. Do you you feel that that this this reaction from her has something to do with the fact that she ran uh, against uh, an Asian-American opponent in the past and, and feels some sort of targeting from that? And um, no, she at her election she didn't. She was the only candidate for her post. So. Sure, sure, but there but there were three candidates uh, on this ballot, and uh, Renee Saunders Knight had to face a uh, challenger Hugh Gwynn. So I'm just curious. Oh, okay. Yeah, I'm just curious if 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 this had some sort of uh, impact, or, or 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 I'm trying to find a reason why uh, Councilperson Dean is reacting in such a visceral way to something that would seem innocuous, just including some ability for folks who don't have English as a first language to be able to understand a ballot. 
Yeah, I'm sorry. I couldn't give the answer for her. Sure, sure. So remind, uh, for those uh, for those who are just kind of catching on to this story, remind everyone what it is that you are trying to do. Well, I'm trying to give the access accessibility uh, to the American citizen who have uh, illness. Uh, it's not their mother language, and they cannot speak that well. Mm-hmm. If, if, yeah, so they we can promote them to, to be more engaged, involved, and mm-hmm. to be uh, to, to go to vote. And Calcedon's uh, uh, comment was shocking. Um, you don't agree with the idea is one thing, but coming with the hate uh, for and attacking like that is it is just a, something different. Yeah, it's it's pretty shocking when you look at the city's demography. By the way, you see that uh, Morrow's population, according to the 2020 census, is about 40 percent African American, uh, about nearly 30 percent Asian, about. 15.5% Hispanic and 11.5% white non-Hispanic. Uh, you are obviously looking to give uh, moral residents who don't speak English, uh, notably Spanish, and I believe uh, Vietnamese, correct? Is that the... Is yes. That the yeah. Yes, uh, because the reason is Vietnamese because 32.9% of the Asian is 2,100-something people, uh-huh. and the Vietnamese is 2,000 out that. 2,100. I see. I see. So you're saying that uh, the Vietnamese American population makes up the, the the largest chunk of the Asian population within more. Right. Yeah. Okay. All right. Um, so what has the reaction in the community been to this? I, 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 can, I can speak from outside the city at just how appalling it, it, it sounded to be called un-American by a fellow council person while sitting on the dais and being told that you shouldn't be even allowed to sit there in that office anymore, but how, how did that how did that resonate within the Asian American community in Morrow? Well, I wasn't happy about that at all, and I uh, disagree with her. And if you watched the live stream last night, uh, the media live stream, you would see that um, people are not happy about that, and they came to the meeting to uh, speak up. Well, catch us up on that then. I, I I wasn't aware there was a live stream last night, so I apologize. And I know you were you were up pretty late. You you messaged me pretty late last night, so I guess this went long into the uh, evening. What what came of last night's meeting? Were there any resolutions or, or any simmering of, of 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 moods or any opportunity to to bring some peace between the two of you? Uh, it is what it is. Uh, after <laughs> well, attending the meeting, we have uh, we have. Six state representatives came to the meeting and they uh, emphasized, their comments were very much emphasized, uh, promoting voting and bilingual ballot is the, um, the good thing to have. And some of uh, other organizations, uh, some of organizations came and they also emphasize not only that um, it's some by multiple ling- 
multiple lingual ballads mm -hmm. is not only that the assistant to the non-English speaker, I shouldn't say non, um, for, for, for the minority voters, mm -hmm. but also there is a federal law that require that. It say if the population is 10,000 people mm -hmm. in, or 5% mm -hmm. of the population is minority and have inlet deficiency, then the, there is a must. Uh, then they are mandatory to have the bilingual ballot in that minority language. Mm -hmm. But at, in the end, for throughout the night, there were 30 comments from public. Mm -hmm. And Miss Dorothy was given the letter of condemning from 26 Georgia legislator condemning her remark. Yeah. But after all her comment to public very much, the freedom is to read and learn English. So, what's next? What uh, t tell tell me where this where this this project is, where it's going? Oh, the the petition is still ongoing, regardless. Mm -hmm. uh, the council opinion because we need their support, but if they don't have, uh, if if we don't have their support at this moment, it's okay. Hopefully, after they see all the facts of how much, um, how much higher. The percentage of the, these minority group in the community, uh, 33.9 in Asian and 22% Hispanic and Latino versus when net is 16% something, uh, let me see, 16 something percent and uh, Asian and then 13.8% Asian and 22.3% Hispanic. Uh, we net had the bilingual ballot in his in Spanish, and they are proactive to have all the election material in Mandarin, Cantonese, Korean, and Vietnamese four different Asian languages. Mm -hmm. Meanwhile, the CAF only have 6.6% of Asian and 8.6% of Hispanic or Latino, mm -hmm. but the CAF volunteer to provide key uh, election information started in year 2020. So hopefully uh, some at some point the council reconsider that and reevaluate their thought. But at this moment, the, the petition will go to the city uh, county level. We will be going to the Clayton County Board of Election. Mm. I was going to ask: Is there is there any cost to the city to extend this uh, ability for 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 those who who don't read uh, or, or speak English? Is is there any like undue burden it, of cost? Any implementation would cost something. There are grants for that as oh, well. Okay. Uh, so, and it depends on what we get at the time. But even if it costs, it is a good spending because there's nothing uh, uh, 
better than spending the money to assist the voters, American uh, citizens, to vote, because that is our democracy. Right. It just surprises me that this comes, honestly, I'm, I'm just going to be very forthright. This surprises me coming from uh, uh, an African-American woman of a certain age who should know from the history of civil rights and all the struggles that this country has dealt with to overcome barriers to vote. There used to be literacy tests and other poll taxes and quizzes given to African-American voters that had to be outlawed for the for, for the nearly same reason. The uh, If there was an inability to you know, to read due to a literacy issue, accommodations had to be made or, uh, you know, questions of constitutional relevance were, were, were thrown before certain citizens uh, in a lot of Jim Crow states and counties throughout this country. It just surprises me that that irony, it seems to be lost on Councilperson Dean. Yeah, I, I don't get it. I, I just just don't. In her critic uh, uh, criticizing against me, she was talking about herself walking to for yeah. the voting right act. Right. But has some some reason she not seeing that yeah. I am into I'm standing for voting right act as well. So the same uh, for the same things for this, uh, but she accept. It, at the certain eight time, but she would not accept it in a different time. So it's it's just a strange thing to see. It is very strange to see. Uh, give us a little bit of your background, uh, Councilperson Trance. Tell us a little bit about yourself and and how how you how you came to be involved in American politics and serve on the Moro City Council. Well, I was born in Vietnam and I uh, immigrated to this country when I was thirty years old, uh-huh. and um, I would start. My first job is to work for the city of Morrow. I worked there for over 10 years. Uh-huh. And then I had a job opportunity in the city of Atlanta at the um, Jackson Harfield Atlanta International Airport. Uh-huh. And um, I had the opportunity to uh, uh, come back to Morrow and serve the community because I worked there for so long sure. and that was my town. It's uh, for 17 years of living here in the U.S. I spent 13, 14 years in Morrow. Yeah. So it's my home. It's my hometown. What are the important okay. issues facing Morrow that convinced you you wanted to run for office? Uh, there was a lot of uh, things that were out of my uh, uh, common sense, um, uh, like uh, when the council started to allow nepotism, you know, the wrong thing is going to happen. Yeah. Yeah. With a, a government that size of 80, about 80 plus employee mm-hmm. uh, and allow nepotism, you you know, it's wrong to happen. And other things like they <laughs> they are planning to close the road without engineering study, professional advice, things like that. It's just like you, you cannot run the government by how you feel, uh, but it has to be by um, the stewardship 
responsibility. Right, responsibility and stewardship. You're right. Yeah, nepotism is a, is a is a big buzzword in uh, exurban and rural communities throughout the state. You know, and, and not that the, the major cities or even the state or the, the entire yeah. country is immune to nepotism as well. Well, listen, I wish you all the success. I know you've gotten broad support from the AAPI community, Black and Hispanic caucuses at the state level. I wish you all the success on this. I I, I find this to be no different than needing to provide, uh, you know, Braille ballot instructions for the blind. Uh, I I just, I think, I think this is, this is a worthy cause. And uh, I'm, I'm, I'm thankful that the, uh, Asian American and Hispanic American population, the, the residents of Morrow, Georgia, who uh, need that service, uh, have you fighting for their cause. I think that's a worthy one. And so I appreciate you doing that. Uh, no problem. I'm fighting that for all the people who have the, um, who needed the help. I'm just giving them help that they need and encourage them to get more involved and to be inclusive. There you go. We need more politicians like that. Van Tran, city council person from the city of Morrow. Thank you so much for the time. I appreciate you coming on The Ron Show. Uh, you're welcome, and thank you. Incidentally, if you are brand new to this story, we have Dorothy Dean's diatribe in today's show notes at ronshowatl.com. Back after this on America One Radio, wherever you podcast. All right, final segment of The Ron Show for Wednesday. And a couple of weeks ago, we got word that... Representative Nisha Maynard was leaving the Democratic Party, not to become an independent, but to completely abandon about 80, 85 percent of her platform and say, I'm going to go with the GOP. Doesn't make a whole lot of sense. I, I talk to operatives all the time who cannot make sense of why she's doing this, at least for her political future. Makes no sense. Really doesn't. There's just like there's no upside to it whatsoever. Um, however, she did get a lot of conservative friendly media time and ink. So perhaps her status has risen within the conservative culture. Again, I don't know what this does for her in her vastly majority uh, liberal district. She doesn't stand a snowball's chance. I mean, she's going to try though. In fact, uh, Leo Smith, who we had on the show a couple weeks ago, a, uh, a uh, political um, consultant, conservative political consultant, uh, messaged me, in fact, called me earlier, and I called him back, and he, we, we spoke for a few minutes about the fact that she's going to hold a town hall, which I told him. He, maybe she should have done that first. I won't disagree with that. Don't disagree. Okay, good. So, see, we do agree with that as well. Anyway, he asked me, you know, like, you know, would you would you be willing to attend? And I don't know why it's important that I attend, um, but, but sure. In the same vein, though, Cobb County Tax Commissioner Carla Jackson has decided she's leaving the Republican Party as she runs for another term next year as a Democrat. (laughs) She was appointed to the post in 2014, uh, ran as a Republican in 2016, and then again in 2020. uh, She told the Marietta Daily Journal that she kind of went with the Republican Party because she felt more comfortable with the platform, but now she says that the GOP has shifted from her in recent years. And I don't know that this, I mean, obviously there's a, there's a different when a difference when it comes to like the level of the job. I mean, a County tax commissioner is not nearly as lofty as a state representative, but I don't see a whole lot of ink being, um, 
put to paper for that kind of switcheroo. Uh, in any event, yes, I. if anyone wants to know, yes, I, I would be there if uh, Misha Maynard decided to hold a town hall. I will also tell you, and I'm not going to lie, I'm very on the fence about this invitation. I have uh, been put in touch with a guy by the name of Corwin Monson, who has a story to tell about his past with Misha Maynard that wound up putting him behind bars over what he claims is coming to get a chainsaw that she possessed that actually belonged to him. Where did you think I was going with that? <laughs> For a minute, I stopped at Chainsaw too and thought, oh, this sounds like a horror movie. No, uh, no, there's this, he was a campaign volunteer. In fact, the person that's trying to connect me with Corwin to have a discussion about his past with Misha Maynard uh, actually worked on the campaign with Corwin for Misha Maynard in the past. So there's uh, there's a little something going on about that. And it's my understanding that while he actually is a convicted, uh, a former resident of a <laughs> state penitentiary, uh, that he could run for her seat. Not sure how true that is. Anyway, he's working on a documentary about all of this. And so I'm very on the fence about whether or not I'm going to, like, I feel like I want to do a little bit more of the due diligence on this before I just dive into, yeah, well, let's put him on the show. And so just know that I don't just throw anybody on this show if they want to come be on the show. Yeah, look at me doing my due diligence. Um, I could sit here and talk about the Giuliani stuff. Giuliani admitted to lying about uh, the two election workers in Georgia. That is more political posturing than any, or I'm sorry, judicial posturing more than anything. He's basically trying to, I think, avoid further charges. This uh, Nolo Contendere filing he made um, last night where attorneys who work for Rudy Giuliani wrote that he, quote, does not contest that he made defamatory statements. He also admits that he spread and amplified these defamatory statements. Now, the attorneys also claim that Giuliani is making this admission only to move things along to the next phase of his trial, where he can once again move to dismiss the case on grounds that his false defamatory statements are still, quote, constitutionally protected. Wow. Uh, We're also getting word that... um, Senate GOP leader Mitch McConnell uh, had to leave a news conference after sort of uh, freezing up mid-sentence. Now, I mean, that happens to me on occasion. Fortunately, because I pre-taped this show, I just edited it out. Nonetheless, uh, we're keeping an eye on that. Uh, Mr. McConnell has been in the Senate for quite a while, been on this earth quite a while as well. Not that that's an issue, hey, When the Democratic nominee for the presidency is in his 80s, as is McConnell, early 80s, as is McConnell, what are you going to say, right? Also, in fact, I was just talking to an old friend of mine, my friend Sonia, who um, I can talk about her all I want because she won't listen to this podcast. Not that she won't, she just says she's going to get around to it and doesn't. So, there. Uh, We were sitting here talking about how, like, (laughs) Bernie Sanders looks like a man in his late 60s. 
And that's a compliment because he's in his 80s, obviously. He's older than Joe. He's older than Donald. He's older than Mitch. And Bernie Sanders is just still plodding right along, doing his thing. Uh, all right, so... Sorry, this last segment was just kind of a little bit of a rambling, right? I apologize for that, but that's going to do it for today. I want to thank uh, Moro Councilperson Van Tran for joining me to discuss her situation with uh, Dorothy Dean. Back tomorrow, 5 to 6 p.m. on the American One Radio app, AmericanOneRadio.com, wherever you podcast. Have a great one.